Oh, it's so good to see you in the house of the Lord, and I'm just delighted that you're here to join us. And if you're here for the very first time, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. You know, many Christians are taught, and they even believe, that once they put their faith and trust in Christ, that as their personal Savior, their lives should become much easier. How many of you believe that? <laughs> How many of you believe that when you have accepted Christ as your Savior, that your life should become more easy? There's people who actually believe that life should be a, a succession of quick, easy victories and triumphs. All they have to do is sit back, sit back, and watch God bless. It's sort of the idea of let go, let God do his thing, and we'll all be fine. You know, that kind of mentality. But life with God is more active than passive than the one would think. All right? It's not just sitting back and and watching God at work, but we also have a part. With our freedom from the power and penalty of sin come responsibilities. Come responsibilities. And we need to keep those in mind. We can see this more clearly in the events of the exodus of God's people from Egypt. We see this outlined for us very clearly. Like life with God means allowing God to lead us, to deliver us in his own way, and to worship him, and to worship him. Those things come out very clearly in the account of the Exodus. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in Exodus and in chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13. And let's go in and see what God has for us. But let's pray first. Father, as we come together in your house, we are touched and we are moved by all that you are doing around us and in us. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't always see it or appreciate it, but yet you are consistent in your love for us and your long suffering with us. We pray now, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may see what you have for us. That we can learn, that we can live in our lives daily. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may be joining us after an absence. You may be perhaps joining us for the first time. You may be perhaps have been here, but you don't remember a thing. (laughs) It's one of those kind of cases, all right? And so we have to ask ourselves an important question. What happened just before the exodus from Egypt? Because those events were just as important as the exodus itself. For example, there was a request. God commissioned Moses to tell Pharaoh to release his people after 400 years of slavery. All right. Let my people go, he said. Well, what was what happened after that? Well, there was a refusal, not just the ordinary no, but a defiant refusal by Pharaoh. He literally was daring God to do something about it. Have you ever met a child like that? Yeah, I've met people like that. You know, you give them a very good request and you say it very nicely to them. And they, boy, they let you have it. They do not want to do what you ask. And so this was the kind of defiant refusal that Pharaoh gave to God. He was daring him to do something. Well, what was the response? God did do something about that. God doesn't sit there and just fold his hands and he doesn't just turn around and put his head down and just leave quietly. Rather, God, he rained down a series of ten catastrophic plagues on Egypt. 
And that's what we have been going through the last few weeks. Now, rather than go through each of the ten plagues, I just want to review for you the reasons why the plagues happened. The plagues were not just random acts of God, because God was on a mission. There was a purpose for these plagues. And so you might remember that one of them was to deliver his people out of Egypt to the promised land. Exodus chapter 3 verse 8 tells us, To deliver them from the power of of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. That's what God said to Moses. He says, hey, I'm going to send you on this great mission. And this is what you're to do, is to deliver my people out of Egypt. He's also there to reveal himself to the Egyptians as the Lord. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. It said this, the, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They, would, they, were, they clearly needed to know who they were dealing with. He says, I am the Lord. And, he, and also another purpose was to leave an unforgettable demonstration of God's power and faithfulness for generations of his people to come. Remember Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, when Jesus said in there, I mean, not Jesus, but when it was recorded, that you may tell in the ears of your son and of your grandson how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. All right? So God had all of these purposes working for him. All right? They weren't always clear to the Egyptians. They weren't always clear to the Israelites. In fact, sometimes they were wondering what was going on here because God didn't always reveal everything to them at one time. But that's what he was trying to do, to deliver, to reveal, and to leave. But also one more, and that was to judge the gods of Egypt by showing they are false and powerless. I told you before that Egypt worshipped over 80 deities. They had 80 different deities. And when those plagues hit, they were aimed directly at the deities that were in charge of the Nile, in charge of the crops, in charge of all kinds of things. And when God rained his plagues upon them, he was performing judgment upon those deities. They were false. They were nothing. And that's what God was doing. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, it says, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so God was at work here. He was on this mission. And he was, ex- and he was fulfilling this. He was unveiling it. He was executing it marvelously in front of the Egyptians and the Israelites. Well, what's the result of all this? What was the result? Of course, we know the ending of the, this part. The result was that around midnight, God executed his last and final plague, taking the life of every firstborn man and beast in Egypt. Boy, that must have been something. Can you imagine the power that it took to do that? Can you imagine the resources it took to pull that off in that great land of Egypt? The firstborn of man and beast, its life was taken. All except... The firstborn in Jewish homes. Why? Because God provided the Passover feast and the Passover lamb. And those Jews, those Israelites who put their faith in God's word and God's promise. And they took the blood of the lamb and they put it over the top of the door and on the side posts of their doors. 
When the death angel came over it and saw those signs, he would just pass over them. And their firstborn would be safe. Okay? And so they were safe because there was a substitute that died in their place. Okay? The lamb. And so God was true to his word. He kept his promise. He executed his plan. He fulfilled his mission. Now, we should stop here for just a minute. It should be noted that God is on an ongoing mission in us. Each one of us. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of us here in this room, including myself. He's on a mission to deliver us from the bondage of sin. To reveal himself to us afresh. To leave us with unforgettable memories of his power. And to judge the idols in our lives. You might think to yourself. You says, well, you know, yeah, I know God's at work in my life. But it just seems so random. You know, he just sort of comes in and goes out as he pleases. No, God has much, he's more intentional than that. And so sometimes God is rooting out in us these idols that we may have in our life. He's rooting out. These, he's trying to show us again his power. He's trying to reveal himself to us. So ask yourself the question before you leave here. Ask this question after you leave here. Ask this question when you're at home tonight. Okay? Ask yourself, what is God doing in my life right now? What area of your life is God purging or purifying? What, how are you responding? Are you responding with defiance or with obedience? You see, we don't think about those things. We think about, what should I eat tonight? Should I have chili? Should I not have chili? Should I have noodles? Should I have rice? You see, we bother ourselves. We fill our minds and our lives with all of these important questions. And yet we forget that God is at work in our life. And we have to get back to that. Devote some time tonight. I don't think you have to take the whole night unless God leads you. But ask yourself that question. What is God doing in my life? And how am I responding? Am I responding with defiance or with obedience? And so this would be a good exercise for all of us to do. God executed the redemption of his people and was taking them out of bondage to Blessing. That's the title. Bondage to blessing. All right. And if you stop to think about this, wow, it's true. God is doing that in our life. Now, this is where we have to pick up the biblical account of God's people exiting Egypt. To do this, we're going to start with chapter 13, starting with verse 17. Now, there are way too many verses, and I can't possibly read all of them. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to read you samples, okay, that will support the point that I'm trying to make to you. Three things that God's people must do as a result of God redeeming or rescuing them from slavery. Three things that all of us as God's people must learn and live daily, okay? Uh, One of the persons on the staff said, you like that phrase, learn and live. I said, yeah, because it's easy to remember. Learn and live, okay? If you do one without the other, it's incomplete. You have to have both. So learn and live. And so what is this that we're going to learn first? First of all, God leads his people so that after we are saved, we should follow God's lead. 
This is in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. Notice that in verses 17 through 18, if you have your Bibles, you can read it. I won't read it, but you can read it. It says, God chose a route. God chose the route, the exit out of Egypt. Okay? He wasn't looking for the PIE, the AYE, the CTE, or the you know, CPE and all of that kind of stuff. God decided to choose the back road. He chose the long route. Not the shortest route. He pointed them instead of on the coast. He pointed them inland to the wilderness and to the desert. Now, if either one of us was in there, we'd probably say, get me there. Get me fast. Get me there cheap. You know, (laughs) that's the way we think, right? That's what we would say. But God said, no way. I want you to go this way. He chose the route. He also chose a reminder of of his promises to his people for them to take along. Look at verse 19. Now, this was fascinating when I read it and the commentator pointed it out. In uh, chapter 13, verse 19, it says, he says, uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. This was back in Genesis chapter 50. And this was 400 years ago. All right? And so Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, I want to tell you, listen, he says, God's going to get us out of here. I don't know when, but God's going to get us out of here. And when you go, you have to promise to take me with you. So take my bones, take my coffin and go with you. So every day when the children of Israel were out in the wilderness, they would turn and look and see this coffin. What would it remind them of? It would remind them that back 400 years ago, one of their very own believed God would come and deliver them out of Egypt. And here they were, out of Egypt. And they would say, praise God. Praise God. God knows what he's doing, my friend. God knows what he's doing. And so this coffin even served as a powerful reminder to the Israelites of God's faithfulness. But verse 21 tells us that God chose a pillar, a column, to lead them on their journey. This was found in verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and to lead them on the way in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. (laughs) You know, sometimes I look at these descriptions in the Old Testament. I said, boy, I would give anything to be there. But the closest I could get was the movies. All right. And so I remember in the Ten Commandments and all these movies about Moses and all that kind of stuff, they tried desperately to try and create this cyclone-like column. And it would, they would go before the people and it would go and, and it would give them cloud cover by day. And then at night it would give them warmth. It would give them fire. God was doing a mighty thing. You know, this whole business of God leading us, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. Uh, I, I'm taking a class, okay? I'm taking some personal in, uh, tutoring from our own Doug Erdman on Navigator material on how to disciple people. And so one of the books he had us read had this article about a tandem 
bicycle. You know what a tandem bicycle is? It's a bicycle for two riders, you know, one in the front and one in the back. They each have their own set of handlebars and pedals, okay? And so this wonderful article was set up as a modern-day parable. And it was about two riders on a tandem bike, a bike for two people. At first, at first we were in the first seat. Okay, we're in the first seat. So I'm on this bike, man. I'm going like crazy, all right? I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. Keep quiet. Don't be a backseat driver, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But God is in the second seat. God is in the second seat. And he's quietly, patiently, lovingly waiting for his moment. God taps me on the shoulder. Tap, tap, tap. And he says, let's switch seats. Let's switch seats. Well, I'm not too happy about it, but he's God, right? <laughs> so I'm not going to fight God, right? So we stop the bike. I get off the bike. I go to the back seat, and he comes up to the front seat. God gets up there. Wow. Boom. We take off, and we're going through the ups and downs of life. We're going through all of the corners and curves of life, and he masters them masterfully. Like I could never do. That's the, that's the idea of leading and guiding and directing. God says that this is what he can do for, for us if we're willing to let him. If we're willing to let him. And so this is the, the I hope this will, image will stand in your brain for a while. And you'll say to yourself, what did I learn today? I learned that there's, we're on a tandem bike. And God is in the front, and I'm in the back. And we are going like all get out. And we are doing good because we are allowing him to lead. We are following God's lead. This is what we have to do, folks. This is what we have to do. How many of us are still saying no to God? No, wait a while. Let me, ride, let me, let me drive this thing a little bit longer, Okay. When God says, no, it's time, it's time, let me lead and let me drive, let me sit in the front seat of this tandem bike of life. Well, that's the first responsibility is to follow God's lead. The second responsibility we have towards God after we are saved, and this is found in chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. God delivers his people. God delivers his people. After we are saved, we should let God deliver us. God deliver us, God deliver us, but his way, his way, okay, his way, okay, now, how does this unfold, you look at verses 1 to 14, you see the pursuit of God's people, in verses 1 to 4, God talks to Moses and gives him a preview, he gives him a little piece to understand what's going to happen ahead, he tells him that the people will turn back, they'll change direction, Pharaoh will hear about this, and he thinks that the Israelites are lost and confused. And he said that they're vulnerable at this time. We can just go in there and capture them and bring them back. No problem whatsoever. That's what he thinks. But actually, there's something else going on. So, Pharaoh orders his army to chase and catch up to the Israelites at the edge of the sea. This is verses 5 and 9. But look at what happens to the people when they see the armies of Egypt approaching them. Verses 10 to 14. The people begin to cry out to God. 
As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Not a bad idea. <laughs> Not a bad idea when you see Pharaoh and his choice special forces coming after you with all these chariots and all the, this kind of stuff. And so you cry out to the Lord for help. But then that crying out to the Lord soon changes. What? Look at the mood. Look at how things change. Then they said, starting with verse 11, then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Why? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What were they doing? They were complaining to Moses. They were saying to Moses, what's the matter with you, Moses? You hard of hearing? Didn't you hear us before? Just leave us alone. It would have been better for us to die as slaves in Egypt than to die in this wilderness, as it were, as refugees or as non people non grata, you know, have no country or anything. They were complaining to Moses. And then what happened is that Moses comforted them the best he could. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, but Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. <laughs> He's saying, look, relax. Just go back in your corner. Don't say anything and just watch. And you'll see what God does to these, this Egyptian army. And so that's what he did. Now, I want to stop here to share with you a thought that came to me. And that was this, is that, did you know that this generation, the ones that Moses left Egypt with, they were the ones that he got stuck with in the wilderness for 40 years. They were constant complainers. They were the ones that had to die before God moved on and fulfilled his promises. Did you notice that? These, these guys had a strong track record of complaining. All right? And they carried that with them all the days of their lives in the wilderness. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to complain. That's almost like saying to Singaporeans, don't say anything. All right? That wouldn't be polite. Okay? That would not be polite. And I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to you, there's a difference between complaining and commenting. There's a difference between the two. Now, you're sitting out there and some of you finally have woken up and you're saying, okay, well, what's the difference between complaining and commenting? Okay? Complaining generally has an edge to it. A negative one. If you listen very carefully to the words that we were just reading, they said, isn't that what we just told you, Moses? What's the matter with you? You can almost sense the angst in their voice, the anger, the, the, the I told you so, the, the, the I'm smarter than you, Moses, and you aren't listening to me. 
That's complaining. That's murmuring. Okay? But when we comment on things, it's more constructive. It's like saying to people, someone, one of my, one of my interns asked me in my church in Texas, and he says, Pastor, how, how do you phrase things to very difficult people? And I said, I ask questions. I turn comments into questions. That's what Jesus did. You know, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees and stuff, he asks questions. But the answer was clear. It was like making a statement, but asking it by, saying it by asking a question. And so sometimes when people come to me and they're commenting on what's going on with the church, I just say, well, how would you do it? What do you think is a better way? Should we change the time? Should we serve more food? Should we do this? Should we do that? When you make comments, you can ask people questions. You don't have to be harsh. You don't have to be demanding. You can get your point across. But obviously, God's people here had developed a habit of being chronic complainers. And we see this in a lot of interactions they have with Moses. And so the lesson for us is let's not be constant complainers. And then in verses 15 through 31, the provisions of God come into play. There's a promise that is made to Moses in, verse, in the verses 15 through 18. Verse 16 is a good summary of that promise. And so it says, as, you, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry ground. How many of us would buy that? Okay. You see the Red Sea out there. You're looking out there. I don't see anything happening. And he says, raise up your, your staff. Raise up your hand. And you will pass through this on dry land. Well, okay, it's a promise. And then in verses 19 through 20, God provides a protector and a, in the pillar. Verses 19 and 20, it says, And the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. It says, so it came between the camp of the of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. Okay? So imagine this. The pillar's out front. Okay? The pillar's out front. And so what happens is the pillar moves back. And it says it's associated with the angel of God. And it comes to the back. There's the Egyptians. There's the Israelites. And so he says, no problem. No problem. I'll make it so dark over there they can't see their noses. And they wouldn't dare attack because they can't see where they're going. But on the back side, Israelite was enjoying the light that they had been following all these years. All these days. And so this was a wonderful provision. The protector and the pillar. Then there was the passageway. Look at verses 21 and 22. And it says in there. It says. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind. All night. And turned the sea into dry land. So that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea. And on the dry land. 
And the waters were like a wall on, to them on their right hand and on their left. Fantastic. Fantastic. Raises up his staff. The waters part. The children of Israel can go through safely and smoothly. Wow. But that's not the best part. The best part is yet to come. Okay? The best part was the power of God. The power of God. They were pursued. They were, the, they, they were pursued. They were provided for. And now the power of God comes to play and destroys the Egyptian army. This is in verses 23 to 31. Now, I'm not going to read those verses for you. But I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to direct your attention to Psalm 77, verses 17 to 19. All right? Now, this psalm is about the Exodus. All right? And it gives us some details that are not given to us in Exodus. All right? Psalm 77, verses 17 through 19. This is from the New Living Translation. And what it tells us is that there were rainstorms that were involved. There was lightning. There was thunder. Even an earthquake. See, that's why in verses 24 to 25, you find such words as God confused the Egyptian army. That's why the chariots, they couldn't ride them. Their wheels wouldn't go straight. They were in complete disarray. Why? Listen to this. It says, when the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a path one no one knew was there. You led your people along that road, uh, that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. Verse 31 tells us that this was a great demonstration of God's power. When, they, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that fantastic? God provided everything that they needed. Sometimes I get into situations with people and I recall different ones. And sometimes I, I often wonder why does God's deliverance have to be so dramatic? sometimes you know god can do anything anyway anytime he wants but why does he always seem to wait to the last minute <laughs> you know why does he seem to wait to the last minute okay sometimes god takes us down to the last sliver of hope and despair we are drowning in our own worries and cares and we think we're going down for the last time and then god effects the the uh, the uh, rescue God effects the rescue. Well, the Sunday school answer and the correct answer is Isaiah 55, verse 9. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And then the rescue comes. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, there is this famous 
comforting words that God gave to his people. He says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And sometimes God has to take you and me down to the final seconds. Before. Before he will effect the delivery. Before he will effect the delivery. That's what God did with the children of Israel. The army of Egyptians were right on their heels. And then God marvelously delivered them. I remember in, in America, we don't freak out about the cost of school and where we're going and stuff until we have to choose a university. Here, you do that when you're trying to apply for P1. <laughs> you know, or even kindergarten. You freak out, right? <laughs> where do we go? Where do we go? How much is it going to cost? How far away will it be? And all this kind of stuff. You know, in America, we do this at university. And I remember getting our kids into university. And all seven of them, it never was easy. It was never easy. We say to them, oh, you know, it'd be good for us to go to this school because it's cheaper and it's closer and blah, 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 blah. What did our kid pick? The farthest school they can pick to get away from us. <laughs> and the most expensive school. And then Effie and I would just pull our hair up. Well, well, whatever was up there left, you know, we would do something like that. They'd say, oh, God, 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 how are we going to provide? How are you going to do? And then at the very last minute, God would provide some way for our kid to go to the right school. You see. Now, why couldn't God have just let us know earlier? <laughs> why did he have to wait to the midnight hour? It's because then we could really see the power of God. We could see the power of God at work. And so sometimes that's what happens to us. When we are saved, we need to let God deliver us His way. Not our way, but His way. And His way sometimes goes directly against our way. Okay? Let's hurry on. The last one is God receives worship from His people Oh, I have to thank Toshi and his team for singing that great song on Worship His Holy Name. Man, I was just into it. I was into it. That was a perfect song. And this is what happened here. There was a song of worship that was raised up by God's people. And this is found in chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Now, the scholars have studied this and they say there are four stanzas. There are four stanzas to this song. And the first one is found in verses, first stanza is one, verses 1 to 5. And what this does is it remembers what God has done. Okay, so look back in Exodus chapter 15. And you'll see, for example, in verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. The horse and its riders, he has hurled them into the sea, it says. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. What is the focus? 
The focus there is on what God has done. But then if you go to the second stanza, verses 6 to 10, it, ta- it remembers how God did it. Verse 8, for example, it says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. God wasn't blowing his nose. Okay? But he exerted a force that was so great that it caused the waters to part. So it was remembering how God did it. And then... The third stanza, verses 11 through 16, it helps us remember who God is, who God is. For example, look at verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, he says. You see, we somehow lost all that a little bit. We're such a rush to be close to God. We've reduced him to our best friend, our buddy, and those kinds of things. But no, he has done wondrous things. And so, and we need to remember that. Then lastly, the fourth stanza. He he helps us to remember what God will do in verses 16b to 18. And if I read for you verse 17 and 18, it says this. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. All future tense. All future. This is what God will do. Past, present, and future is all covered by God. So our first and most natural response to God delivering us should be worship. Should be worship. We are so focused sometimes on the performance rather than on the person the performance is about. You got the point? A person sings unto the Lord and we're sitting there, mm, missed the note, oh, a little sharp there. Oh, the timing was a little bit off. We worry about the performance. Whereas we've lost our thoughts about who is he singing about. He's singing about God. There's a song that we sing. It's called The Heart of Worship by Michael W. Smith. And there's a stanza in there where it says this. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search more deeper within. Through the way Things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you. When we're here worshiping, when we're here singing praises to God, when we're here thanking God, What is our first and foremost thought? Ooh, nice music accompaniment. Ooh, good song lead. Oh, isn't that person's voice so beautiful? Or the opposite. (laughs) When it should be about all about God. It should be all about God. When we are saved, we need to give God the glory for who and what he does through our worship. So what can you and I do? What should we do? Okay, what can you do? What should you do? 
Three things very quickly. First, learn and live to panic less and trust God more. <laughs> that, that's almost an impossible <laughs> request, right? Because we are a nation of panickers, right? We panic about everything, all right? I drive here in Singapore. I get up to a red light, and you can see the cars on either side of me and the motorcycle. They're just edging up. They're edging up. They're edging up. And they get really upset if, they don't, if the signal doesn't change. They're panicking. You know, it should be changing, but it isn't. But that's what they do. It says we should learn to panic less and trust God more. I wish for the day. I pray for the day that in my life and in your life as well, in the life of GBC, that our heart would be like what is recorded for us in Psalm 119, verses 1 to 3. How blessed are those who weigh is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do, do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. So, know the word, obey the word, and then live the word. Okay? Okay? That's one thing that you and I can do. And we, won't, we will panic less and trust God more. Number two, learn and live a life of active worship. Active worship. What's active worship? <laughs> you know, what's active worship? It's where we acknowledge God's deeds in our life. Where we recognize his power. When we exude confidence in him for the future. Make worship of God a permanent part of your character. Not just an add-on, but an integral part of your character. That you do it naturally. That you begin to remember the deeds of God. You remember the power of God. You remember what he can do for, uh, will do for us in the future. In Psalm 71, verses 12 to 21, 17 to 21. In the New Living Translation. Maybe this should be our heart when it comes to worship. Psalm 71, verses 17 through 21. Oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood. And I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, oh God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation. Your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the highest heavens. You have done such wonderful things. Who can compare with you, O God? You have allowed me to suffer much hardship, but you will restore me to life again and lift me up from the depths of the earth. You will restore me even to greater honor and comfort me once again, it says. <laughs> When's the last time you felt that way? When's the last time you had a quiet worship with the Lord or a time set aside that you felt that way? God, things are tough. God, things are hard. But you know, but you know, I have this confidence in you because you are God that everything's going to be okay, that everything will work out. When's the last time you felt that way? Huh? You can feel that more if you make your life, learn and live a life of active worship. 
Well, not all of us in here are probably Christians. Not all of us have followed God. Not all of us have been delivered by God. So learn for you is to learn, love, and believe what God has done for you in Christ already. Okay? God has done more for you than you think. Oh, what? God has done something for moi? For me? (laughs) What has God done for me? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. God rescues and provides redemption for us through his son, Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13 and 14, it says this, and it says, For he, this is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has removed the biggest obstacle between you and me, between you and him. And that is sin. That's the biggest obstacle. And then, what else has he done for you? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, It says there, it says that God makes us alive by canceling our sin debt, by nailing it to the cross. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. It's like God was saying, paid in full. No problem. It's not going to come back in the mail to you. It's done. That's what he did for you. What else did God do for you? Lastly, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. God makes forgiveness of sin possible if we believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. If you look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Ten verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness. That through his name. Jesus name. Everyone who believes in him. Receives forgiveness of sin. Listen. When. Our sins are forgiven. We are delivered from bondage to. To blessing. And that's what God has done for us. He did it for Israel. He did it for us. So the choice is yours. So choose wisely and choose quickly. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. If you want to accept Christ, if you have questions, come and see me or one of the pastors or one of the elders. And we'll be more than happy to speak with you. God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt to blessings across the Red Sea teaches us about living life with God. We must allow God to lead, to deliver us according to his plan and to worship him. So the question remains, are we fulfilling these responsibilities as much as we should and as much as we can? If not, why not? If not, then why not? God wants to take you and me on a journey from bondage to blessing. Are you ready to go? 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 
God is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you teach us so much from your word. You teach us a lot of good things that we must not only learn but live daily. Thank you for speaking to us again. Thank you for bearing with us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.